I'm Jolyon Rubinstein, professional podcaster, idiot, and allegedly satirist. And I'm professional idiot wrangler and journalist James Ball, and you're listening to The New Conspiracist. This is a podcast that boldly goes where most people know better than to tread. Each week, we take one specific conspiracy theory and one great guest and we dissect it. What's the conspiracy? Who's behind it? What's the evidence for it? And why do people believe in it? Then we settle, once and for all, whether the conspiracy is fact or fake news. So whether you want answers on 9-11 or the Loch Ness Monster, on Benghazi, or whether Avril Lavigne died and was replaced by her body double, regular listener Melissa, you're in the right place. Now this week, we're talking to legendary documentary maker Adam Curtis, whose recent series, which is now available on iPlayer, can't get you out of my head, frankly blew my mind. And it's certainly not the first time he's done that. From Century of the Self to The Power of Nightmares to hypernormalization, Adam's incredible work interweaving archive with mesmeric voiceover simply is unlike anyone else's. But what he decided to talk about may shock you. So James... What are we actually talking about this week? As much as we could have recorded an episode of This Is Your Life with Jolly and a particularly fetching new Michael Aspel, we actually had a podcast first where the guest actually gave us the exact title that he wanted to talk about. So this week we are listening to Russiagate. Was it all a fantasy? Let's jump right in, shall we? How are you, Adam? I'm fine, thank you. What a journey you must have been on with the, the the new film. Where did the idea for Can't Get You Out of My Head, where did it come from or where did it evolve from? Well, I think it had two, two, two places it evolved from. One was I wanted to do something. I mean, when you do something one way, you always want to try and something else. And after hypernormalization, I decided I wanted to do something that was more emotionally involving and more like it's a thing I've always wanted to do it's more like one of those 19th century multi-part novels where you you bring the characters for, I mean they're all real but you bring the characters forward more and use them to explore ideas in a more open way and sort of ambiguous characters which allow you to speculate more I, th- that's one thing I wanted to do the other thing was about halfway through I suppose what you call the Trump Brexit era I began to get a bit baffled by why those who most la- most hated Trump and most hated Brexit weren't actually looking to offer alternatives to those who had voted for Trump and Brexit to try and get them back, you know, to shape the world the way they wanted it to be. I was just a bit baffled by that. And so I, des- I decided this was a very strange time. It was almost like, um, the best way to describe it is, it was full of sound and fury, yet it was also very, very static and frozen. Very strange. And I decided I wanted to try and explain how all the different routes that have led to that strange frozen moment that, that I think we've just lived through, really, and maybe still living through, I'm not sure. So one thing I found quite sort of interesting and striking through it and something that could be quite unnerving, I think, especially if you watch eight hours over two days, as I did, was this something of a theme of chance and coincidence and, um, you know, almost that sense of does that mean something? Is it deeper? Is there something nefarious? Is it the meaning that we throw into it? But I, I really found of, of several things that jumped out at me, the the sort of running coincidences and the, the way different people ran into each other 
you, you could really start putting two and two together and making 20 and yet obviously the film doesn't do that it's how, why was that such a cent- central theme maybe you'll tell me it wasn't and I, I latched onto something completely wrongly well I, I mean what I wanted to do in the films was two things one's to try and get a sense of the complexity of the world that, that I think you know often when I do films about ideas I follow one idea um and, and that's really the, the trajectory I'm going on. On this, I want to do something which is a much broader history, in which you were following a number of different, the best ways, like rivers, or different things, from artificial intelligence to melancholy about empire, to the rise of drugs like opioids, that at the time, back in the past, seemed to have nothing to do with each other. But, but all of them have led to this sort of strangeness of now. Do you see what I mean? That, that, that they're... in a way they all had different roles to play almost like characters in themselves so in that sense I was following things that on the one hand were like completely separate but if you want to try and explain now you can't just follow one set of ideas you've got to follow lots of different ones so I think I was trying to do that every now and then I also because I did feel I was trying to write something that was more rich and involving and a bit more like real life than just simply following ideas I would literally put stuff in that just was of that moment. Um, mm. Just because when I, when I work in, in using lots of archive, I have up my sleeve lots of moments, just recorded or archive, just fragments. And I just like the idea of, of just saying at this point, this moment happened. Do you see what I mean? Because it's sort of like life. You know yourself, when you're walking down the street, you just glimpse something happening. You have no idea what it means, but it's just a moment of experience, which is part of your life as much as the conscious, rational thought you're having. And I decided just to put some of them in as well, because I just think I like that. And I thought if I liked it, maybe other people would. No, you're right. I mean, it's an extraordinary tapestry. It's sort of a, a mosaic of bringing together all of these disparate themes that often in the kind of media age that we're sort of driven by, you know, it might be an extreme headline that you click on, but you never really understand the context. Then what you're doing is you're bringing together so many aspects of the malaise that seems so central to this sense that you seem to sort of put through the film that what we're really lacking is the confidence in our own imagination to actually create any form of new system. What I wanted to capture was that sense of a dream world that we've got into, which is that things come and go, just like in a dream, and they flicker into your consciousness or into your vision, and then they're gone. Like, you know, fish in a tank. They suddenly come up to the edge and then flicker away again, like that. And I was trying to get that sense not just because, oh, that's what life is like, but also I was trying to make a broader point, which you've just touched on, which I think is the central thing in it, is that in a way we just live with random stuff at the moment because we have run out of confidence in the ability to tell ourselves stories about the world. And to do that, you need imagination. And imagination is seen as dangerous for all sorts of reasons, partly because it led to grand, terrible, horrible revolutions in the past, but also in an age, how do you describe it? In a utilitarian age where money is the measure of everything, imagination takes a back seat. It's seen as a, a it's just not right. You know, if, if you're going to measure everything in a managerial mindset, imagination is wrong. And I think that's fine when everything is going well and people are borrowing money and buying the consumer goods and expressing themselves as individuals. But post 2008 and the crash, the financial crash there, that runs out of road. And what you just get is a fragmentary, quite lonely experience. And 
out of that comes dark imaginings. And what I was trying to say in this is maybe it's time we recapture our positive imaginings about the future. So one one thread I wanted to pick up, given we are, after all, a conspiracy podcast, is um, you you make quite frequent mention of the Templar conspiracy theory, uh, sorry, the Illuminati conspiracy theory, and uh, its sort of modern origins. Um, and the sort of obvious like the extraordinary kind of self-own as it were of trying to create you know the people trying to create a conspiracy no one could believe and then finding it becomes quite intertwined with a lot of existing conspiracy narratives and frankly becomes the basis for a lot of QAnon now it must have been quite a weird thing to chronicle well it was this is because I just found these two Characters, which are central in the films, I don't want to give too much about them away. But but basically, they were the early individualists in the 1950s in America, who believe because conspiracy theories have been going for 200 years by that point. And I point out that the first Illuminati conspiracy theory is, I think, in the 1810s in America, that that there was this group from Bavaria trying to undermine the American government. But these two boys thought that conspiracy theories undermine people's confidence in themselves. It always made you feel weak and, 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 and helpless. So what they decided to do was to parody it. And they became part of the counterculture that start, started in the 60s. And they set up this organisation, which I think I'm allowed to call Operation Mindfuck. It, 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 its aim was to parody all, consume, uh, all conspiracy theories. And they decided to tell everyone that the Illuminati were behind everything, that really, in effect, they were the secret rulers of the world. The only problem was is that as that began to spread through the counterculture in the late 60s and then the early 70s, it began to be revealed that the American government had actually been doing some very strange conspiracies. And this is the key thing to it, is that conspiracies and conspiracy theories are two very different things, as I'm sure you know. But because one seemed to reinforce the other, they started to get mixed up together. And I just think I was fascinated because I thought, well, I mean, you could never prove it, but this is one of the roots of this weird role the Illuminati play online today, because they're everywhere. You know, it's, it's not just QAnon, it's, as I show in the later, one of the later films, there is a big theory that went from about 2008 onwards that most of the major stars, Beyonce, Britney Spears, have been mind-controlled by the CIA, working with Walt Disney and using MKUltra techniques and the Illuminati, and they've put secret messages in all their videos of triangles. So how much how much do you think Dan Brown is to blame for the weird thing that every conspiracy theorist I know seems to think that every major global conspiracy is impossible to expose, but for the fact that they constantly leave weird symbols and numbers and clues in everything they do, like, as you say, that triangle that everyone makes? Yes, it, it's, it's that... The human desire to pat- see patterns everywhere. But uh, uh, to be honest, I think Dan Brown came late to the game. I mean, I think what's really interesting about this is we- we've never fully got our heads around hippies. Hippies gave up on politics somewhere in the late 60s and instead turned to culture. And they started to play with culture in these weird ways, like Operation Mindfuck, that, that instead of actually trying to argue with people rationally, you'd mess with their heads. Um, and it played a very big role. And I think that you can argue that what those two boys did by introducing that idea of the Illuminati 
was one of the big roots of today. Dan Brown, when does Dan Brown come? 90s? I think so, yes. He's late. He, he's picking up on something, like a lot of popularizers, that was already there under the surface and just brings it out. Uh, and I, I don't think we, you know, what, what happened in the 60s and 70s is that people who would have been political, in inverted commas, went into culture and started to mess with culture and mess with our heads. And, and we're the sort of inheritors of that. You talk a lot about this idea that, you know, when you, in some of the later episodes, you look at Tupac Shakur and, uh, you know, you, you look at how, you know, they wanted to change the world, but that was trapped within culture. Can you just explain to people a little bit more what you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that if you go back to the 1960s, there was a great desire for radical change on the left. It failed dismally. And many people retreated into talking about culture and music, just as it was a retreat. Then came Mrs. Thatcher and Reagan, which was a terrible shock to those people, because they thought the world was going their way, and it didn't. And what then happened, I think, was the culture got sort of... Weaponised is the wrong word. It's, it, it got used as an alternative radical bait. It was the place you were going to set up your radical camp to challenge... The, the, the new the right that was rising up in America and Britain. And out of that came this idea that, that you could have a radical culture. And I think, and I get quite into quite a lot of trouble for saying this, is that actually what happened with that, without them realising it, is they sealed off their radical politics from actually having an effect on power. Commodified it, sort of created sort of whether it was a single or an album or a book, you know, created a product that it would could be housed in and talked about, but essentially became a piece of the money system. But, but, but essentially it was sealed off in a world that didn't actually change the world very much. That's not to say that it didn't change people's attitudes. And I think that what's interesting about the, the people who retreat into culture is that in the sense of, of gay rights, feminism, all the, all the other things which were called identity politics, that was really good. But what they retreated from was confronting economic power. Um, and to be honest, you know, making a radical piece of music doesn't, is not strong enough to, to confront economic, entrenched economic power. It may do very well at, at changing people's attitudes to each other, and that's really good, but it, 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 it was a retreat from power because they lost confidence, I think. I mean, it, it's, it's still an area waiting to be examined, I think. Before we go into the, the, the broader themes of what, you know, this podcast, this particular episode is about, I'd love to ask you, as we, as we ask all of our guests, like, you know, what was your, what was your entry-level conspiracy? Do you remember sort of coming across them at university or seeing something and being like, well, this is weird. Why is everyone into this? I thought they were tragic. I, I always thought they were tragic. They, they, they were a, a retreat from the complexity of life. That's what I thought. You see, I grew up, I really like novels, and I really like the complexity of life and the complexity of emotion. And it's sort of what I realised was happening when I was growing up in the 80s, is that people were retreating from the complexity of life because they'd lost confidence. You saw it in your own generation. Um, and I think conspiracy theories, which I'm, are a reflection of just a part of that. It was a much bigger thing. It was, it was a retreat from engaging with changing the world 
into an idea of expressing your desire to change the world. And the two things are very, very different. Totally. I, I think it's so interesting for me because when I first came across Century of the Self, uh, the first time I watched it was in, in university and it was the same time that 9-11 happened. And I remember the same person who showed me Century of the Self starting to show me Zeitgeist, which was an absolutely zany, insane conspiracy theory movie. And I remember having a very big argument with him about the difference between an evidence-based documentary and it was factually correct and someone making sort of large comment pieces but it sort of became sort of totemic for me because there seems to be a problem doesn't there with lots of people all around the world who don't seem to be very good at distinguishing one from the other but that is not completely their fault what you what i think what what you had and i, I sort of trace the this in in the, the new films i've done is that because we all became arch-individualists, which we all are, it meant we don't want to join political parties, we don't want to join trade unions, we want to be our own selves. And in the face of that, politicians found that they'd lost the one thing they really needed, which was the collective power of the people. You might, it's a forgotten thing now, is that really what mass democracy was based upon, which is how we got the vote, how all kinds of things were changed, was because the politicians felt that they had behind them the collective power of the people that they could use to challenge entrenched unelected power. Mm. By the early 1990s, that had gone. We, we were just millions and millions of little squealing piglets who wanted to express ourselves, and, uh, often through consumerism and through culture. And in the face of that, the politicians knew their power had gone. So what they did is they gave up, which was cowardly of them, but it was our fault as much. And they became, they switched almost 180 degrees and said, no, we're going to become the agents of those who are of power, who will manage the world in the interests of everyone, but we won't represent the people any longer. It really was a massive shift, but in doing that, they did one, they, they got their one crucial weakness. They gave up telling us stories of what it was all for, because that's what politics was also about. That's why it was so strongly linked to journalism, is that it was telling you the kind of world that, that if you give me your vote, I will create for you. And you, you felt, as you gave those people your vote, you were part of something. You were going to go on beyond your own life. And, and it, was no, it was noble and great. And, that, and journalism was noble and great. And I'm not being sentimental. It really was powerful. That all went. And, but when stories go, if you're on your own, it's fine if things are going well. But post 9-11 which was the first of the big catastrophes. We've lived through an age of catastrophes, but that was the first of the big one. That when things get frightening and there are no big stories told to you by those in power, you just try and invent. And that's why those, you're quite right, it was at that moment that those things came flooding in, yes? Really everywhere. And, and, all, and because at the same time the internet was full of facts about the weird things that American governments had done, you know, they tried to assassinate people with poison toothpaste. They'd, they'd done all these things. They'd actually tried to brainwash people by giving them large amounts of LSD and electrocuting them all the time, their heads all the time. They had done all this. That got mixed up with weird stuff, fictional stuff about the Illuminati. And in a world where the politicians weren't telling you any big stories and the journalists weren't telling you any big stories, people went into this dark, strange, mixed up world, which I still don't think we're out of yet. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. 
Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, nothing. No tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. We absolutely must sort of jump into our conspiracy theory or our topic of the week. And uh, as as we are gracious hosts, uh, Adam, I I will let you introduce it for those who haven't deduced it from our episode title. Well, I wanted to do this because everyone knows about QAnon. I mean, even the polar bears in the north of the, 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 the world know about QAnon. So I don't want to talk about that, but QAnon is interesting because it was, it's, it's seen as this great mass conspiracy theory that rose up in the Trump Brexit era, right? What I wanted to gently suggest is that it's only half the story, that at the same time as those who were the supporters of Donald Trump began to believe that, those who opposed Donald Trump fell down their own rabbit hole of a conspiracy theory, which is not a mirror image, it's just they went into uh, their own conspiracy theory, which was fundamentally said that the regime of Vladimir Putin conspired and colluded with Donald Trump to get him elected the President of the United States, which seems to me a conspiracy theory. Why I wanted to talk about it is because I find it a good route in to discussing something that I think is really interesting that has not been discussed. Is, we haven't even got our heads around is that we've just been through something very weird over the last four years. Both sides, both left and right, found themselves locked into some strange netherworld. And, and it's very odd. And this is a way to, I mean, I'm just being a journalist, this is a way to examine that because I think they both, both sides ran out of the road to, that, that allowed them to understand what was going on. So can 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 I ask for for clarity? It's um, should if if Trump Russia is one side of a conspiracy theory, for those of us in the UK, would you tie some of the Russia Putin Brexit narratives in with that, or do you think that's a different phenomenon? I don't know enough about that. I mean, uh, partly because what's important about the Trump. Uh, Putin conspiracy theory is that it has been investigated and investigated and investigated and I think one can actually talk about that and also one has, which I think is really important is that most Russian journalists who are opponents of Putin think it's complete rubbish and and I think that's really interesting Um, Brexit I don't know, it's, it's lost in the swamp of unknowingness. It's going to throw a lot of people that are listening to to suggest that because people will think, well, we know that Donald Trump Jr. Um, was associating with WikiLeaks, who themselves had hacked material from the Russian state, whether we know they knew it was from there or not. They might think, well, Paul Manafort served prison time for a probe relating to Russia collusion. They will think about... You 
you know, people like Felix Sater, who was trying to set up um, Trump Tower in Moscow and was building connections. And so they will think there's a lot of real connection and collusion. So how can that be a conspiracy theory if those are true? Have you noticed the three things you've just said to me aren't actually addressing the central point of the conspiracy theory, which is that there was a active collusion between the regime of Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump to get him elected. None of that, well, everything, everything you've just said is, what would, to, to be polite, is, is typical of a conspiracy theory. It slips and it slides. And it slips and it slides away from the original point, which is the collusion I've just mentioned, to whether other things happened which were dubious, dodgy, odd. The same thing happened with the JFK conspiracy theory, is it went into all sorts of other areas. As far as I know, and, and, and a lot of Russian journalists will argue this, is there has never been any hard proof of that central allegation in the in that conspiracy theory. Do you think I mean, that one of the reasons I'm really struck by, you know, the the narrative that, that is is so central to the film is about fragmentation of the narrative and personal interpretation of facts that seem to have causal links and therefore form a pattern that you can sort of feel sort of quite safe in the knowledge that you've sort of almost solved the puzzle somehow. Do you think there's something quite... Um, comforting to a lot of people in the idea that, oh, well, Russia must have been colluding with Trump, and that's why this behemothic entity of, you know, populist fury that seemed to completely railroad all of the gentlemen's agreements of how politicians were supposed to behave, what they were supposed to say, what they were not supposed to say, how they were supposed to act. Do you think that's central to why this is such a powerful conspiracy theory? I think it was very comforting, and I think it was more than comforting, because it allowed millions of people who were really shocked by the election of Donald Trump, and more than that, shocked by the fact that the people they had always thought they were helping, the white working class, had turned on them. It was comforting because it was a way of avoiding facing, looking at the real elephant in the room, which is that millions and millions of people were really angry had voted for Donald Trump because they had felt marginalised, isolated, and left completely without help as their um, towns and cities, factories closed, and, they, and people became addicted, thousands of people became addicted to opioids. They felt alone and angry. It allowed people who had no other, no solution to that to avoid looking at that. So instead of looking at the, this giant elephant standing in the middle of the room, what they started to look at is the tiny little things around the edges about whether some Russian trolls had done this or whether some, someone at a, at a mid-level mid in the Moscow oblast had done that. It, it was a way, but this is why I'm interested in it, because I'm not really interested in it as a conspiracy theory. It became a, a very good way of avoiding looking at that elephant in the room. And I still don't think they have. That, that seriously, there is, over the last 20 years, no, 10, 15 years, there, has, there is pressure knocking at the door of our society and American society of people who have been marginalised. Of course, other people voted for Trump. That big elephant it says, says there is something structurally gone wrong with that society that was started 30 or 40 years ago, really based on the borrowing of money um, and, and debt. It's gone wrong. And it was a way of avoiding that. And I think that's really interesting because the other thing behind this is that if you go and talk to 
Russian journalists. Um, I give you the, the, the journalist I really like is a woman called Masha Gessen, who writes for the New Yorker. She is a really fierce critic of Vladimir Putin. She's written books alleging corruption, all sorts of things like that. She just says it's completely ridiculous this idea that there was a collusion. She, she had a great phrase. She said, "What the what the Americans have got to realise: it wasn't Russians that elected Donald Trump." It was Americans that elected Donald Trump, and they haven't managed to get their heads around this. And I think that's absolutely right. I mean, that's really what, what I think is most interesting, is that it, it's not interesting in itself as a conspiracy theory. It's evidence of the desire to avoid facing up to the reality of what's gone wrong in modern society, which was fundamentally based on, on lending money to people to go and buy stuff, and then it crashed in 2008. And no one quite knows how to deal with that. And this, this was a beautiful way of avoiding that from all sides. It's in your films, you, you, you talk a lot and you've, you've, you've talked about it, not just in, you know, the, the latest uh, the series that you've done, but you've talked about it in, in, in many films before. But it seems to me that it was summed up, and I, I forget who, whose quote it is that you put in the movie, but there's a, 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 a part, I think, of the second film where you say... Um, the whole premise is is on the on the sort of of the basis of our democracy is it's we the people and that the people are sovereign and the people are clever but what if they're not what if they're actually the the worst people to be you know really dictating where our future is going that's fascinating and that's i go back to this this um thing i was to talking about earlier on about how what happened to politics in the 1990s is it lost its base of the people. And the politicians knew this. And, it, and what begins to emerge in the 1990s is this idea that actually um, the people might be dangerous. It goes back to the, it's a repeat of what happened in the late 19th century when mass democracy first came up, which is this idea is if you let the people actually vote for things, they might vote for things that you really don't want. Um, um, the quote I put at the front of that film is from, I think it's from a man called Farid Zakaria. He's one of those writers in the 90s who starts to question the idea of whether democracy actually is dangerous. And it was interesting, after the election of, of Trump, you began to see this. People saying, well, the people are stupid, which I just find interesting. It's, it's very interesting that, that a class who, from the late 40s, 1950s onwards, saw themselves as the protectors of the white working class. It's where the idea of the corporation came from in America. It was this idea that you, the privileged middle-class liberals, will create organizations that look after the mass of the people. It was seen as an extension of mass democracy. And that's where the, the whole idea of the paternalistic corporation comes from. I mean, it's where the idea of the BBC comes from as well. It's this idea of a paternalism, that you're going to look after the, the, the people who are less powerful, less well-off, and less well-educated, to put it in inverted commas, than you. That hit the buffers in, in 2016, because that class, who had already begun to worry about it, suddenly found that the very people they thought liked their benign care turned around and bit them. And, and they found it very difficult to get around the shock of that. And I, what I'm arguing is they retreated into what is effectively a conspiracy theory to avoid having to face up to the implications of that. That's not to say that I'm sure there were nasty Russians doing very nasty things. But, but what I'm interested in as a political journalist is that it's evidence of something much bigger. 
I found it, can I read you a quote that I found, which I think is really interesting? It's from a, 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 an Indian journalist called Pankaj Mishra, who I think is really good. He's talking about um, a group of Native Americans back in the 19th century called the Crow people, who were, were taken off, they were taken away from their nomadic life and forced to live in great poverty uh, in a settled existence. And it's the problem for a, for a crow, is, they said, was wasn't just that my way of life has come to an end. It said, I no longer have the concepts with which to understand myself or the world. I have no idea of what is going on. And what I think is really interesting about the last four years is both sides, both the right and the liberals and the left, who hated Trump, were both revealed, couldn't face up to the fact that neither of them have any idea of what is going on any longer. I think that's the really interesting thing about, this is what I'm trying to get at in this, is that, is that those who used to be in charge of telling us what is going on are a bit like the Crow Native Americans. They no longer have any idea of what is going on. And by well, that, that, I mean, they don't have the conceptual apparatus to fully understand all these forces that are beginning to be unleashed in society as a result of the failures that started in 2008 and the catastrophes we're living through. And in the face of that, they retreat into a simplified version of the world in which there are goodies and baddies. So Vladimir Putin, who is a really complex uh, figure in, in, in Russian politics, is transformed into a, a simplified Im image of a villain in a, cat, uh, in a cave stroking a cat and ordering people to go and get Trump into power. It, they, they simplify it down because they have, quote, no idea of what is going on any longer. And I so, think we haven't quite got our head around that. One thing that's interesting as a pickup and as a parallel is, of course, um, you know, as you were talking earlier about the Illuminati coming in the same era as MK Ultra and the men who stare at goats and bizarre experiments is, you know, this is one of those dangerous conspiracy theories in some senses where there's lots of little true bits that people can point at that are very strange. Not least, Putin will pose with a cat like a supervillain now and then, and in fact has. But um, the sort of thing I wanted to jump on, a narrative and story was, you sort of offer, and I've heard this from quite a few Russian journalists myself, Putin is actually something of an empty vessel. He's someone who likes to be in power, wants to stay in power, and is actually potentially terrified of what happens if he loses power. Um, but that's sort of led to quite a nihilistic comms approach from Russia that's played out for a long time. Russia doesn't really want to tell other countries a story about itself or themselves. It wants them to stop believing any one cohesive narrative. It will play on divisions. When you see Russian information ops, they're as likely to push Remain as they are to Brexit, if it will divide people. They will push Trump. They will push things that will divide Trump supporters from each other. Uh, gays for Trump was a big line. And these are largely freewheeling, freelance operations. But you do, what I wonder is whether that vacuum and whether actually that dissembling of the little that remained of narratives has created this, has been part of what's created this, you know, Trump, Trump and Russia versus America or these very, very primary colour, light and dark sort of stories. I'm sure you're right that Russian, nasty people in Russia trolls, all sorts of people, were doing very nasty, devious, misinformation things because that's what they tend to do. That's absolutely true. 
what I'm arguing is that that is sort of looking at the tiny little flies on the, in the corner of the room and ignoring that giant elephant. You know, it's, it's as simple as that. And maybe, some, maybe some people were influenced by what a troll said to them on, on, in social media. But, but what's interesting about our time is that those who saw themselves as progressive and on the left failed during those four years to actually try and come up with alternative policies to deal with the fact that so many people had voted for Donald Trump. And even when Trump failed, which he did completely and utterly over the last four years, they haven't seized the opportunity. I mean, I, I think Biden is, I, I quite like what Biden's doing. He made a fantastic speech about how the war in Yemen is really wrong and it wants to stop yeah, arms sales. I wasn't expecting that And I think, yes, maybe he's going to turn into a really radical um, reforming politician just because actually he had no policies to promote. He just said, I'm not Trump. So he's actually got an open field. He may come up and become a really wonderful radical politician. I don't know. All I'm saying is that those who should have made the running and it was an open goal because Trump was failing consistently. If you look at those four years, he failed to reform America, uh, Washington and get rid of the corruption, which he promised to do. He failed to rebuild the infrastructure. He failed to bring the factories home. And he, he failed to stop the wars. I mean, he was total failure throughout all this. Yet those who were his opponents failed to capitalize on that. And I just find that absolutely mysterious and quite weird, honestly. There's a part of um, the film that I was, I guess, because I've watched so much of your stuff before, but I was, I was sort of, it was, I was sort of almost glaring in its submission. And I think in a way, in this context, it's really worth sort of bringing it up, which was um, a film that you made for Charlie Brooker, where you looked at um, Vladislav Surkov and the way he turned Russian politics into a sort of theatre, into a kind of created a party that was shape-shifting, amorphous, impossible to create opposition to. Do you see that in the way that Trump has presented himself. Do you see that being, you know, part of potentially why people think, well, you know, you know, this is the sort of bizarre cavalcade of entertainment that we've seen take place in Russia. Now it looks like it's unleashing in, you know, the United States. It's as if the same tools have been utilized, uh, but in a, you know, a different nation state. Did you, did you, you know, I was interested in why that was one, not part of this film, but two, whether you see that as central to, you know, why potentially so many people are clinging to the fact that there is this conspiracy. Well, because they see it as a model for what went on. Yeah, I guess so. And because it's so out of the ordinary, it's it hasn't got precedent. So it's new and it's dangerous. And it's, as you said, we, you know, and I include myself in this, not sure really got the tools to understand it. I think what Vladislav Serkov did was far more strategic. Is that the right word? Than, than what, if you look at what Trump did over those four years, is he was like a sort of, he just reacted to anything. Um, I see it much more uh, as if lots of people were trapped in a theatre with a pantomime villain who, who every morning would wake up and decided to, to tweet something absolutely appalling. And then in response to that, people in the theatre would tweet back, you know, this is outrageous in capital. Boo hiss. Boo hiss. And what happened was a sort of codependency feedback loop which trapped them both. Um, and meanwhile, outside the theatre, real power in America carried on doing what it does, but without any examination or anyone trying to stop it. And the inequalities um, 
and the decay just got worse and worse and worse. And, it, you know, it, and that's what, in, in the, at the end of the film, the last film, I say what's really strange about the last four years is that outside that hysterical bubble, the inequalities and the corruption and the wars remained the same. Nothing changed. And that's the real disconnect of our time, which I'm tr what I'm trying to get at is that that's the thing that, that the left and, and the progressives have got to get their head around, is that actually it's this frozen moment when, when the inequalities are just getting worse and worse and worse, the anger is getting worse and worse and worse, but no one's doing anything about it. And, and the interesting thing about Trump is that he didn't do anything. He, in foreign policy, he did. He, he, changed, he gave up on the Iran deal, and he did some very strange things with the Saudis and Israel. But, but domestically, he didn't actually do anything, apart from reducing taxes for very rich people, which is pretty par for the course for most Republicans. He did none of the radical things that, that he was supposed to. And that uh, assault on the Capitol, which was sad and tragic in all sorts of ways, because people died and it was just awful, was also sad because what you saw were his supporters who realised, I think, they were part of their anger was that he just had failed. He'd done nothing. You know, and I think this is where we will look back at this these four years of Trump in America and just go, he didn't, it was really strange. He didn't do anything. And the people who were opposing him didn't do anything. They just got lost in a hysterical feedback loop with each other. And, and that's really tragic because actually it was the moment when the left and the progressives would have had an opportunity to change things and to seize the moment and say to the people, in a way, Trump's right, but he's not doing anything. He's conned you. We can do it. We can do it. They could have done that, and they didn't. And it's it's sort of, they missed a great opportunity. I mean, maybe, maybe Joe Biden will pick it up and run with it. But I I think, I just thought it was sad. It's all sound and all fury with no motion, which is, of course, you know, stagnates and pents everything up all the more. Right, OK. Well, listen, it comes to that part of the podcast where we have to decide whether this conspiracy theory is for real or a fugazi. Uh, James, I'm going to start with you. <laughs> I think the the version of Trump and Russia that exists in some people's minds is absolutely, definitely a conspiracy theory and a dangerous one. I think Adams tapped into something very interesting there. I think in the, the gritty technical thing, I think lots of people near Trump did some very questionable behaviour. But I think I'm, I'm, with, I'm with his correspondent on the idea that Americans elected Trump, not Russians. So... Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll hedge my bets this week. Adam. Well, I agree with exactly with what James has just said. Uh, I think there were lots of really nasty, strange, weird things going on between Trump and, and, and the Russians. But it, it, the central thing was, is exactly what Masha Gessen says in The New Yorker, Americans elected Trump. The Russians didn't elect Trump. It was as simple as that. And, and my point is that it, that opens up to a wider debate, which I think is really important, is why can't they get their heads around that fact? 
then that's and until people answer face that fact then the progressive movements in, in, in America are not going to get anywhere yeah absolutely I think it's I mean it's such a fascinating sort of th- you know very small thread that we're sort of pulling out which is such a, a fundamental part of, of Adam's new series which is really about the fragility of the individual the necessity for people to find a way to uh, coordinate themselves in this kind of unprecedented time of flooding with uh, with so much information around how do you make sense of the world around you Adam thank you so so much um, for coming on the podcast uh, are you pleased with how the film's been received so far? I think so yeah even the Daily Telegraph liked it well something's something's gone wrong with that Adam I was going to say a lot of my friends go <laughs> listen guys if you've enjoyed the podcast please please do like subscribe and share it it's absolutely essential for the algorithm uh, I've been Jolly and Rubenstein James where can they find you on the uh, online interweb they can find me on Twitter at JamesRBUK yes well, you can find me at Jolly and Rubes guys if you can make sure you like and subscribe to the podcast uh, that makes a huge huge difference you can uh, catch can't get you out of my head right now on BBC iPlayer I've watched the whole thing I've watched some of the episodes twice because it's so dense you're going to have a fantastic time the truth is out there thanks so much to our guest and we'll be back next week we'll be right back 